0: Listening to Resist and Restore, a podcast from the Circle of Hope Pastors, where we're extending the table of our dialogue. I'm Johnny Rashid. I use he/him pronouns.
1: I'm Rachel
2: Sensenig. I use she/her pronouns. And I'm Julie Hoke. I use she/her pronouns too.
0: It became fall in <laughs> Philadelphia just this week. It feels like it was like summer yes, earlier, it did. and now uh-huh. it's fall. And we just had an election, and it isn't as bad as I thought. So, here we are, just staring Christmas down the barrel.
2: Not yet. Definitely. No,
1: we have a little time. How about Thanksgiving?
0: Thanksgiving's part of Christmas.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. I this know is... you start listening to Christmas <laughs> I music on I have. Thanksgiving, I to Johnny. The,
0: I listened to the 12 Days of Christmas four times yesterday oh, because one goodness. of my children requested it. Wow. Kids are good because they want the same thing Again and again mm-hmm. You know, G.K. Chesterton Has a quote about like How God is like a child In wanting like the sun to rise Every day Or, let me look it up actually mm-hmm. I'll see if I can find it Oh yeah, here it is I think, I hope this is the thing The sun rises every morning I do not rise every morning, but the variation is not, due, is not due to my activity, but to my inaction. Now, to put the matter in a popular phrase, it might be true that the sun rises regularly because he never gets tired of rising. His routine might be due, not to a lifelessness, but to a rush of life. The thing I mean can be seen, for instance, in children. When they find some game or joke that they, they specially enjoy, a child kicks his legs rhythmically during through excess, not absence, of life. Because children have a bounding vitality, they are in spirit, fierce, and free. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. <laughs> but grown-up <laughs> people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. Mm. But God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible... That God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. <laughs> mm. Isn't that sweet? It <laughs>
2: that really That's is a great quote.
0: Yeah, he's, he was quite a writer.
2: <laughs> That's beautiful, and, and it is beautiful. And and yet, I'm also thinking about the um, the eclipse that just happened. And thinking about the variation and how just wildly beautiful and incredible mm-hmm. it is mm-hmm. to see such a i didn't stay up I didn't see it. I just looked at pictures, but
1: my daughter was out there and and I'm thinking about how uh she 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 actually drove to the art museum steps with her friends at four in the morning or something. Um, But I'm thinking about how that instinct changes, like, um, for the teenagers I know, they don't, uh, they're not saying do it again, do it again anymore. In fact, like, like, you know, life is sort of, like, vastly, like, um, like, they want a freedom from the traditions. And yet, there is still that instinct of, like, looking for comfort in the in in the rhythm like I, I i feel a like still there's a a longing there for the to know that the you know the sun is going to rise um that 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 some things won't change and i think mm. that's uh, that that feels resonant of my own adult instincts mm. well we got really Really, uh, into a whole nother topic here. Um, this is normally our talkback time. We like to open our podcast episodes with a time to reflect on what folks are stay- saying in our in our communities, what we're hearing. And I heard a great question in our Sunday meeting talk back this week. That I wanted to pose to you, Julie and Johnny, and our listeners here, um, because I just really appreciated the vulnerability in this question. Someone We, we were talking about um, a person in the Bible who listened to God, um, and this person asked, well, how? How do you hear from God? I've never heard from God in my whole life. How, how do you actually do that? And so I'm wondering if that if that resonates with you too, that that struggle to actually, you know, receive direction or something um, from
2: beyond. Mm. Great question. <clears throat> I've been there too. <laughs> and will be again. Um, I appreciate that she just said it. Like, in the midst of a story of of someone hearing from God, it's so, it's so, um, I don't know, I can relate to that. When I hear someone sharing their own story of hearing from God with clarity or confidence or, like, read it in Scripture, um, it does stir up for me. Like, oh, I want that, too, Mm you know? And a story somehow always seems to— Clarify the, the hearing in a way that doesn't always feel so clarified in the moment, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, we often talk around talk about the multiple ways that God can speak and sort of like running it through layers of discernment. Um, we, we say running the bases. I don't know where that came from. I'm not a sports person so I don't know why why that metaphor got used to begin with but um when we're thinking about hearing from God it helps to run it through the bases of like uh what is scripture saying what is what's what do we hear in all of creation how does how does creation inform what we're hearing about, um from mm-hmm. God uh Community, both you know, ancestors of the faith, and also present day community uh, of Jesus followers. Uh, Am I missing one?
1: Yep the the indwelling Holy Spirit. Yes, in in our own bodies, minds, hearts.
2: Yeah, there's lots of ways. There's lots of things to listen to when we're trying to discern what God's saying. Totally. Mm Hmm.
1: That uh, um, one of our leaders was saying was noting that that lo- you use that word lots, Julie. That um, multiplicity. She was she was even saying God is limitless, and she used uh, this word from this uh, verse from Job, where it says, "For God does speak now one way, now another," and mm-hmm. so it like requires this ongoing listening. It's not like we just get it one time and then uh, we're good to the rest of our days. This is an ongoing process.
0: You know, one of the things that I like to think about in these times is that there isn't always a right way to listen and there isn't always a right answer. Mm -hmm. And like you can make a mistake or you can try again. You know? Um, And that's like sometimes you make like a bigger mistake, but like I hope it's freeing for us to know that, like, we can try again, we can try a different thing, we don't know how it's all gonna work, and you don't need a right answer all the time, you know. Um, But then, like, for me, listening to people that are close to me, that know me, that helps me with personal things, and then for the church, like, listening to the body. Listening to our history, listening to what's worked before, what hasn't, listening to voices that we haven't normally listened to, and things like that, help us to hear what God is doing, or what God might want us to do.
2: Yes. It also occurs to me that, I don't know, wh- whoever said this, um, asked this question, uh, likely has been, in some way, a source of revelation to the people around them. Mm-hmm. And so, even when we we ourselves are asking the question, "How do I hear from God? How do I know it is God speaking to me?" I feel like i'm not I don't have these kinds of experiences that other people do or those kinds of thoughts uh it really does help, like Johnny's saying, to have a community around you because oftentimes people can feed back to us the ways in which God is speaking to them through us, through our lives, through our presence. And and that kind of two-way feedback um, is, I think, helps us to tune into the indwelling of the Spirit, like you said, like the presence, God's presence among us. That's what we're listening to. And mm-hmm. each person is a part of that. Even if we feel like we're Struggling to to hold on to that reality ourselves.
1: Yes, yes, Julie. And that is exactly what happened in in the moment in the meeting when when this person asked the question. It was it was revelation. Um. For for all of us, the people actually began feeding back to her ways that she reveals God to the rest of us. And, and so we, we kind of loosely concluded, oh, this is, this is basically about just showing up and making ourselves available to one another and to God's spirit among us. Not, like Johnny said, not landing on a particular right or wrong way or right or wrong answer. It is just about showing up, being available, being open. Um, so that was comforting to me, too.
2: Beautiful.
0: Talk back to us at Resist and Restore Podcast, the Circle of Hope. we want to hear from you. So if you listen to this podcast, please write back. Let us know what you think. Let us know what your questions are or what commentary you want to make. And be sure to write a review where you listen to this podcast, give it a high rating, share it with people that would like it, share it on social media, and also subscribe to it. You can go to circle of hope that church to find out how to participate in our cells and our Sunday meetings, how to read our daily prayer, and also how to share in our common fund. You can contribute anything you want, no amount is too little or too great. It helps keep this show going and helps keep the work that we're doing at Circle of Hope going as well. Thanks for listening. Hey all, I'm so excited to have Andre Henry here on our podcast. He wrote a book called All the White Friends I Couldn't Keep. I found it very resonant. He's an award-winning musician, writer, and activist. He writes for the Religion News Services, and I'm so glad to have him here as a co-laborer in nonviolent struggle. Um, so welcome to the show, Andre. Thanks for having me. This book spoke to a lot of us in Circle of Hope, the church where I pastor, as we were doing anti-racist work. In a predominantly mm-hmm. white church, and mm-hmm. you certainly have that experience. Um, and you shared it. Towards the beginning of the book, you say the sad truth about white people is that most of them are too attached to the notion of racial superiority to mm-hmm. cheer much less fight for racial progress. In your mm-hmm. experience, how is that woven into white people?
3: Um You know, I think that, like, there's a kind of indoctrination that happens to, you know, those of us who have grown up in the States, right? Like, we are literally educated in this mythology of white superiority in many ways, right? And I think that a lot of, I mean, just to say it in plain English, I think that a lot of white people just think that they're better than people who aren't white right and i don't think that they know that they hold that belief consciously i think a lot of white people don't don't are not aware that that is the position that they hold but if you were to talk to them about what they think is gosh what is the right word here um low class uh what they think is rude what they think is inappropriate what they think is sophisticated what they think is civilized mm-hmm they'll just describe their own habits and norms, right? Totally. (laughs) And the things that don't fit into those habits and norms, right, you know, are the things that they assume that other people are doing wrong badly and need to change, right? And so I feel like that's, when you say how how is it woven in, I think that's how it's woven in. I'm reminded of, I think, a story that I did tell in the book with a woman that I was talking to about police brutality. And she said something like, well, if they just... If they just dressed normally, like maybe they wouldn't receive that kind of violence. And I, because she was my friend at the time, you know, um, I wanted to give her the benefit of the doubt and give her grace. And so I pressed her gently to tell me what do normal people look like, you know. (laughs) And I wouldn't let it go. Like I didn't keep asking the same question over and over again, but I wouldn't let it go until she gave me an answer. And when she gave me the answer, she looked shocked. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't surprised at exactly what she was saying, but she 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 was shocked to find when she said, I guess they look like me. Right. Wow. And I guess I guess to your question about how is it woven in, I think that's what it is, is that it's like it's like the air that we breathe, right? It's like a fish being in water. Like it, that's that's Just what it is.
0: One of the things that I've encountered is consciousness of our racism Mm -hmm. is, for white people especially, it's hard to come by. Because we're told in many, many ways that racism is wrong. And so, um, people think, as long as I'm not using the N-word, as long as I'm not um, in a KKK rally, as long as I'm Mm -hmm. not, you know a supporter of David Duke then I'm not racist because right, we right. have seen such explicit, explicit flagrant, um, demonstrations of racism. Um, yeah. but I think that that fear of being racist does get inside. Like you, you start to, um, uh, because you can't admit to yourself that you are, you just hide it from yourself. Right. right and right. you just live your life in a way that <clears throat> contributes harm. And when you're confronted, because we feel it, people of color feel it.
2: Right.
0: And so when we share our experience, all of a sudden we're dealing with white feelings and white fragility. Um, yeah, and a reaction and a defensiveness. And sometimes it's like, yeah, I'm not gonna keep sharing my experience and I'm gonna talk to people and relate to people that yes. understand it already.
3: Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there that I mean, exactly what you said is like kind of what the book is about, right? It's like when you start talking about what it feels like to be a non-white person in a society, in a society that was literally built on the idea of white superiority to justify all the power inequities and all that kind of stuff, you know, you end up, or at least I did. I mean, I I hope that some of this is changing. I mean most of the people around me in general, regardless of race, seem to at least concede that racism is a problem now after the sure. killing of George, George Floyd. But in 2014, 2012, 2013, 2016, that was not my experience when I spoke up about my experience in the world. I, there, most of the white people, I would say, that were around me at the time uh, were in denial. Right. And um, I feel like I don't know if I would still describe the time that we're in right now as like white people are necessarily denying racism as much as trying to make themselves the victims. Right. Like now, OK, they, they that they're finding that language politically useful and trying to say, oh, no, 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 we're not the racist. You guys are the racist because now you want to steal now you want to replace us, right? That's mm-hmm. the big, that's the yeah. big lie.
0: Totally. Um, and they often will take the position of uh, the oppressed person now, you know, yes. they they yes. subvert the language and they, they, uh, you know, yeah, yeah they want yeah, but, to act like they're the victims.
3: Yes. But to your point, um, the book is very much about like that experience when you're like, I can't keep having these same conversations over and over again. You know about whether or not racism exists. Who's who's really being affected by it? Why is it an important problem? You know if if we're building, you know if well, I was thinking about I I think about this all the time. It's like you're a rocket scientist, right? <laughs> and you and your other rocket science co- rocket scientists colleagues are working on some new technology, and some intern is in the room. <laughs> And it's like we can't do that because you know machines can't fly. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, does everyone in the room now need to stop to to get this person up to speed, or does that person need to leave the room? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> and oh, that's okay. a, that's kind of like the convert. That's kind of like what I learned in the book. or the the a major lesson in the book is that I'm t- talking to people and saying, you know, if if you want to do something about racism. If you want to do something about climate change, if you want to do something about, you know, democracy, because we know democracies are backsliding all over the world. I don't know how useful it is for us to just like keep on arguing with people who want to, who literally do not want to see the truth of the problem. If
0: Yes. If we have a common mission. Yeah. It's one thing. But if you're hostile to the mission, hostile to the position it's a lot of wasted time to try to convince you to do something.
3: Exactly. Like if you and I are trying to fight racism, but but you're like, Andre, the only way that this is going to happen is if we blow up some buildings. And I'm like, no, nah, man, we can't blow up buildings. That's a conversation worth having because we're working on the same project.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. So, you know, people talk to me a lot about this and they're like, is there any room for political diversity? And I said, yes, if we're on the same mission, you know. Um yeah. people on the left in particular would benefit from less ideological commitment and more cooperation as we're working yes. on a common cause. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we cooperate with white supremacists.
3: <laughs> yeah. It's
0: you know, just the difference. You know.
3: We can't you, cooperate with white supremacists.
0: You talk supremacists. about this you yeah. talk uh, towards the end of the book you actually talk about unity that's good and unity that isn't good.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So unity among common activists that's right. positive that's great.
3: Yeah. Yeah, you know. Yeah, for sure. But but you can't have unity, like you can't have unity against. I mean, between okay, for instance, like fascists and anti fascist You know what I'm saying? Like, it's totally. You you can't unify because you know I can't unify with someone who wants to oppress me because then I have to turn against myself, right? Like yeah,
0: it's like you know, ice I agents mean, and immigrants in the same church.
3: Right, right, exactly. You know, and that's a. I mean, even with even just kind of subtly bringing up that point, it's like I think that when we're talking, I mean, in my experience in church, I have often found you know people who want to have that exact vision. You know, I see I see pastors and people tweet things like that, right? Mm -hmm. Like we have ice, we have ice agents and immigrants in our church, as though this is like a badge of honor for them. You know. And it's like, okay, you might think that's good, but it's probably because you have the privilege of not knowing what that would feel like for someone who might be in danger of deportation to be sitting in the same room with someone who could make the order (laughs) to do so.
0: Totally. You know, we talk a lot about in Christianity, um this image of peace where in the age to come, the lion lays next to the lamb. Mm-hmm. The beauty of that, of that image is that the lion doesn't want to eat the lamb anymore.
3: <laughs> like that's
0: the lion changed, you know, but like, don't put your lamb next to a lion in the Savannah. If that has, if you want the lamb to live still, because right Absolutely. now it's not working that way, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Like, the like, great, lay down your guns, lay down your badge, lay down your uh, uniform, you know, change your mind, you know. But if you don't, right. we're putting our most vulnerable at, at risk.
3: Right. And then there can be unity. And it's that's exactly that chapter about the truth about unity is like, yeah, we do need unity to work on the same project, <laughs> you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. of building a world where we can all be safe and building a world where we can all, um, you know, have... Uh, the things, the resources that we need, where we can live, you know, without violence. Yeah, like we we need unity amongst the people who are trying to bring that world about. But you can't have you trying to, this kind of, I, one writer described it as a unity fetish. And I just, that that term has just stuck with me for years. Is that like that kind of unity fetish that imagines that, you know, the lead, like the the folks on the ground at the BLM protests, can just somehow overlook, you know, the 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 violence that the Proud Boys are doing, and like just live in harmony is just it's nonsensical. And that idea, like many of the ideas that I'm trying to like take off the table in the book, I think is something that really hinders better. Uh, racial justice work, right? Totally. because because when you start talking about the thing that actually needs to happen, which is organized strategic nonviolent struggle, a lot of people do default to these ideas. like, oh, like we just need to love each other. Yeah. <laughs> sure, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> you know, but like you said, pretending that the lion doesn't want to eat me is not the same as us loving each other. <laughs> know
0: yeah i mean what does love really mean then i mean to me that means being anti-racist racism is about hatred so if we're gonna love each other that's what we're doing
3: exactly and we hear people say all the time love is a verb right Mm -hmm. and so like we can't just like say that we love everyone sometimes that love well love love looks like something right like love is a if love is a verb it means it's an action. And what does that action look like when someone that we claim to love is under attack? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. What does that look like? You know, like you got to do something to try to protect your loved ones. I'm sure any parent listening to this recording would think it's ridiculous for a parent to say, "Yeah, I love my kids, but I wouldn't protect them from a robber." Like, <laughs> you know. Absolutely. <laughs> like if a robber busts in my house, I'm just going to let I'm just going to let, let my kids get abducted. No, you wouldn't do that because you love your kids, right? And and when we and when it comes to us, like talking about, you know, people who come from marginalized communities, oftentimes, you know, people want to look down on us because we're because protest and nonviolent action doesn't always look like. I I said always and as soon as I said, always, I'm like, I don't know, I don't know an instance where nonviolent action has looked like. Bypassing the harm being done by oppressors, it's it's actively confronting them, right? And we do that because we love ourselves. Love is an action, right? So I'm going to protect myself too. Totally, totally. <laughs> you know? And organized nonviolent struggle against these systems that wish to cause us harm, that wish to kill us in some, you know, in in many instances. Like that is also love too.
0: Absolutely. You talk about breaking up with a white Jesus in your yeah. book. Mm-hmm. Um, and later on, you'll talk about how you've, still clung, clung to some spirituality and mm-hmm. haven't rejected faith altogether. I don't know if that's yeah. the space you're still occupying, yeah. but what was it like for you? Because you you went to Fuller, right? And that's, yeah. mm-hmm. that's like the foremost evangelical seminary, you know, in many yeah. ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you're inundated by whiteness around you and by white Christianity. What mm-hmm. was the process like for you to let go of white Jesus oh. and to still have some faith?
3: Um, I would say, you know, long, confusing, terrifying, you know, because I, I never had any intention to, to not be evangelical in my life, right? Like I, I didn't know the deep, I didn't know a lot of the history, like of the violence of the white supremacy, all that kind of stuff with evangelicalism. So then like, when I found out, I was pretty naive, like I expected You know, like there are these there's these moments in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, rather, where. okay, for instance, I think it was Josiah, like King Josiah found the book of Deuteronomy. Mm -hmm. And according to the text, King Josiah. Brings this brings the, the Torah, this, you know, this to the people. And there's this huge sense in the text among the people that, oh, my gosh, like we're way off course here. We need to like. We need to correct some things because this is not how God wants for us to live, right? I really thought that a lot of the folks that I've grown up with, that I've worshipped with, were really acting in good faith. And if they knew or they could see that either their active or passive support for white supremacy, systemic racism, racial violence, however we want to call it, uh, was not just in contradiction with the faith that they claimed to 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 live in but I mean it, it, with my vocabulary back then sin I mean that's like, like like I right like if I thought that if people the people that I knew could see the way that they the way that yes their active or passive support for systemic racism as sin that they that that would matter to them and that they would want to repent of that. And I was very wrong about that. I couldn't have been more wrong. And that was a type of moment where you're forced to deconstruct some core beliefs, right? I had been, I went to Southeastern University before any of that happened, uh, evangelical school in Lakeland, Florida. And I remember every year I would learn something in class that that was like okay well now I got to re- rethink you know everything that you know every year at least in one class I would learn something about some biblical text something about some history and I'd have to rethink things and I was thankful for those moments <clears throat> I loved those moments because for me it was like I I wasn't just learning something new about some ancient text I was learning something more about the God that I believed mm-hmm. in and so, I mean, I you know there's this huge conversation among Christians that I that I don't typically I'm not typically interested in, but I mean that that was deconstructing deconstructing and reconstructing every year. But there's a different kind of deconstructing that you have to do when it comes to like religious trauma. Big right? time. Because this was not just me like reading biblical scholars and then being like, listen, Moses couldn't have written the first five books of the Bible. The, the first five books of the Bible talk about Moses' death. How could Moses write about his death? Okay, so for me, it's like, oh, okay, well, that makes sense, right? No pasa nada, right? Just, like, you know, <laughs> as, as they say, you know, that's that's not a big deal to me. But to find out that the people that you worshipped alongside of, some of them close friends, some of them that felt like family, literally kind of the whole time thought that they were better than most black people and wouldn't lift a finger to, to make the world any safer for people like you. Mm. That these people truly believe that God does not care about racism as, as, you know, as one pastor told me, looked me in the face and said that. That's so wild. That was like, that was a whole nother thing. And so I had to like, think through this cognitive dissonance where it's like, I already knew that the church was responsible for a lot of violence right, in history. And I defended I defended Christianity from the epithet of being the white man's religion as growing up, you know. But in that moment, that summer of 2016, through twenty seventeen, I really had to like think through what do I really believe about this because these people are essentially telling me that God is one of them. <laughs> like, Absolutely, God is one of them. God is on their side. God cares about their concerns. God wants to uh, cast cast. They can cast their burdens on Jesus because Jesus cares about their problems, but not mine. And oh. so, yeah, I I gave up on everything for a while. And then that that process of the process of me being open, respectful and even wanting a spirituality of my own after that came from studying revolutions more deeply. Totally. Yeah. Because I I started at I started at forget all the spiritual stuff, because the the, the religious folks and the non-religious folks are all spiritual, spiritual bypassing. Right. Like the Christians are doing it in the name of Jesus. And the love and light people are doing it in the name of love and light. Mm -hmm. So all I care about is the material conditions. And that's where I started. And I found that in every revolution that I've read, and I'm still reading about revolutions today, um, there are always religious traditions. There are always religious institutions. There are always religious people. There's always spirituality somewhere in the mix of it. And that alone made me like, okay, Andre, I know that it may sound badass to you right now to be like, ha ha, I'm a materialist. I don't believe in all that stuff. I just want people to be free. But there are people who've actually done a lot more than you <laughs> for, for our collective liberation. And they didn't throw spirituality out the window.
0: No, not at all. I mean, the the need for transcendent hope to make yeah. imminent progress is really important.
3: Hmm. I love the way that you, that you phrase that transcendent hope for imminent progress. Yeah.
0: like to do it right now. Right. Yeah. Like there's a reason why we have to sing when we're doing the revolution, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's about Mm -hmm. our soul. It's about our body, you know, we we need hope. Um, Yeah. You know, it's like the in faith and spirituality add no, really some things that are intangible to our struggle um, yeah, that are necessary. Like, we still need to dance, even yeah. though, like, yeah. someone might say you should be doing something real practical and real material. No, we also need to dance. <laughs> you know, we need to pray. We need to cry. You know, those things <laughs> yeah. are important.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you meant to go here, but it just reminds me of just, like, it just sounds very Puritan, right? To be like what are you doing dancing? We're supposed to be building the revolution. You know? yeah, totally.
0: <laughs> you know, I mean, I think in the midst of it, we can't let people who oppress us steal our joy from us.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because that honestly is a victory in itself for, for the oppressive system. Right. It's like, there has to be some terrain that is like, it's yours. Right. And that terrain inside that inter- that internal terrain, like, Honestly, so from reading like reading more of like Fanon about decolon decolonization and stuff mm-hmm. like that has been really helpful because he talks about that. You know, that would be a great victory Absolutely. for the oppressive system to. I think he. I think Fanon phrased it as an evacuation of the self. Mm. Right, and I and that's something I that's I think. That may be something surprising about the book is that like later on in the book, I'm writing a lot about like reconnecting with my ancestral roots, going back to Jamaica where my family is from, you know, and all of that. Because when you're saying when you start rejecting kind of like these forms of being and these forms of thinking that this oppressive system wants for you to live in, where do you go, (laughs) you know? Uh, now, obviously, we all we all can't go all the way back to wherever our ancestors came from and live like they did. The world is too different now. But totally, I have been like, in some sense, trying to shed this false self that the oppressive system wants for you to adopt, uphold, nurture, cultivate. Right. And asking asking the question a lot, like, where do we get such and such idea from? Like, cause I want to be able to, I want to be able to identify like the, the norms that have been passed down because of, uh, because of oppression, because of subjection. Right. And what are the gifts of my ancestors? I know the traumas, <laughs> you know,
0: mm-hmm.
3: like I know so much about the traumas, you know, but what about, but what about the gifts that that they've given us. So totally, totally.
0: It's easier to focus on white supremacists that are flagrant uh police um mm-hmm. and other soldiers of white supremacy mm-hmm. that stamp out black rage. But you say rank and file white people also do this. Yes. You know, just ordinary run of the mill, not uniforms, yeah. no KKK hood, no maga hat even.
3: Yeah.
0: And they yeah. try to stamp out Black rage. Why does it make white people so uncomfortable to see people of color angry? Especially Christian people of color. Uh, Sorry, especially Christian white people.
3: Yeah. You know, I don't really know. I don't really know. But I mean, I, I have my suspicions, right? Like, I think that... Okay, from my own experience, learning that... Not just learning, but really see that the myth of America's exceptional democratic tradition is not just imperfect, as we like to say, but it's just false. Yeah. Right. Seeing that, like, okay, I'm, I've been studying, I've been reading more about fascism, imperialism, and, uh, Particularly wanting to understand more about Black-led anti-fascist movements for for about a year or so now. And this one author, actually, I have his book open right, right now. So I'm gonna just look at the cover right because I, I would say I don't remember the name, which I don't, but since it's right here, Mark Bray's book, Antifa, he mentions a historian that talks about how, okay, so fascism in its formal sense like using the name fascism may have been birthed in like the early 20th century, but functionally, functionally fascism originated in the U.S. in the South with the KKK, (laughs) you know? And like, when you go back into America's story and go down to the roots, you see like, there is this deep anti-democratic political tradition in America, right? To the point to where, like, by the time people were calling things fascism, Black Americans were saying, "Yeah, we don't need we don't need you to define that word for us. Langston Hughes said that, actually, at a, a writers, an international writers conference. He's like, we don't Black people in America don't need to be told what fascism is. We 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 experience it every day in the States. Totally. Yeah. That was so hard. <laughs> for me to ingest and to accept that, like the America that. I was told existed as a child. The flag that I pledged allegiance to the song, the patriotic songs that I sang were just like filled with a lot of lies. Totally.
0: It's, I mean, yeah, to experience that is, uh, that's, that's life changing right there.
3: It's hard, you know, as I say it, I still like in my body, like I feel, you know, like, I, I think that what I'm feeling, the sensations that I feel, like my, my skin is like tingling right now, as I say it. And I think that there is a huge sense of loss, right? From that. I don't know if America can be the place that it ever claimed to be for everyone, but I know that it was never intended to be that for everyone. That is hard, especially when people I really identify with being American, with this country, you know, and thinking like they're a part of one of the greatest political projects that ever existed in the history of mankind. I think that there are a lot of people who, as Walter Brueggemann says, I think, in the prophetic imagination, that there's this widespread refusal to grieve. Mm, Yes. And I I think that people, I think a lot of white people are um, trying to avoid that. I think another thing, is that, and I'm pretty sure that I wrote about this in um, the personalist political chapter and and I think it goes through the the, follows the thread through the um, we can all be white chapter is that white identity is very much tied up in the notion of superiority, right? And I think that the truth is that a lot of white people wouldn't even know that, that would trigger identity crisis for them to really like do some work to understand that them thinking that, for instance, for example, and this is one of like, this is like on the far end of like, just like explicit racism, but I used to have this troll that used to tweet me every day, all day. And I remember tweeting something about colonization. And he was like, oh, so you all want to go back to living in huts and all that kind of stuff. And like, as though like some of the first civilizations I I mean, I I dare to say the first civilizations in human history were in Africa, right? But there is this psychological need for white people to feel like they are inherently superior in this way, right? Like the world that they... I'd be trying to be careful with my words, But you get I think you get what I'm saying, right? Is like yeah. there's this there's this psychological benefit that white people get from identifying with whiteness so strongly. And I think at the end of the day, the the more the most simple thing is just that, like you said earlier, we all know that racism, or I was gonna say we all know that racism is bad, but in 2022, I don't know, some some people are debating about that. But for most of my life. <laughs> White people seem to understand that racism is bad. And so to be identified with racism means that they are bad people. Right. right? And that there's, they're not redeemable. It's the worst thing that they could ever be called. right? And as I say that, and I know I'm taking a long time to answer this question, I'm sorry. It's,
0: it's good, it's
3: good. <laughs> but as I say that, I also have to say that They kind of have a point here because we don't live in a world that generally I feel that where there's a common sense that like you can you can do bad things, you can think bad things and you can also be redeemed as a person. Right. You can you can grow. You can become better. Right. I don't think that generally, by and large, there is this restorative common sense in our culture. Now, where does that punitive punitive common sense come from?
0: <laughs> Whiteness. <laughs> you know? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly right. Like, what's this carceral system that you're afraid of? You, we, you know?
3: <laughs> exactly. It's different. Exactly. But it's there, right? And so I think that there, that a part of the denial, I think a part of the denial is that, is that a lot of white people feel like, well, if I'm a racist, then that's it. It's the, you know, it's the scarlet letter and they're going to, they're going to, They're going to hell. Right. And then, of course, I think the other part of it has to do with power, whether white people know it consciously or not. I just I do think that there's a reason why either people are actively or passively or being used as useful idiots. And I don't mean that I think they're stupid, but I mean the literal like technical term useful idiots for folks who are way more powerful and connected to use them to. to use their fear and use their racial anxiety so that they can hold on to power. I think all those things are like in this soup, right. That make it really hard for white people to grieve. Right. Totally. Engage the fact that yes, you have been fooled. You have been duped. And in the words of Malcolm X, you have been hoodwicked and bamboozled. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that you need to be set free.
0: Absolutely. You know, the defensiveness that comes with, like, trying to defend colonialism. It's apparently yes, evil. You defend yes. it because you can't even bear to see yeah. that there's so much evil there. Like, yeah. you have to defend whiteness, colonialism, Christianity. Yeah. Because certainly there has to be some good. Yeah, And that just uh, changes our... That erases our experience. You know, yeah. you say, why should these representatives of persecuted minority groups have to sit down and convince someone else that their lie that their lived experience is valid? Yeah, it's a great question to ask. We're not talking about sitting down with, you know, Donald Trump and convincing him that our lived experiences matters. We're talking you were talking about sitting down with, you know, white <laughs> liberals. Friends. Yeah, yeah, that that do agree that racism is wrong. You know, you said not yeah. everybody agrees that racism is wrong. That's true, but even among the people that do, yeah, they're so connected mm-hmm. to their whiteness that they can't see, yeah. and it is yeah. completely humiliating to just be like, I'm just asking
3: to be seen. You know, yeah, like at a certain point, it's like. And I, I remember making this connection before, like in real time on another podcast where, where it was like, I remembered I was in an abusive relationship years ago. I was in, I was engaged to this woman. And I always feel like it's important as I bring up this story to say, like, I don't believe in like this good, bad binary. Like my ex was my ex was a wonderful person in some ways. Mm-hmm. And also had also, I believe, did not have the common sense or resources to know how to deal with their anger, right? There was a lot of deconstruction that she needed to do around a bunch of ideas. And I felt very mistreated in that relationship. And that went on for a long time. So Mm -hmm. there was a long time where I tried to talk to her about what it felt like when she would put me down, call me names, curse at me, tell me that I couldn't accomplish my dreams, all this other mm. kind of stuff, right? I would try to try to help her understand what it feels like, like, thinking that I could help her be more empathetic, right? And if I could help her to understand the damage that she was doing, then she would have this real realization and she would stop. And so I went as far as literally like drawing like a children's book. Like I, I took some white, printer paper and some crayons and i wrote her a little book and stapled it together and gave it to her wow none of that stuff worked (laughs) none of it worked and it is humiliating it is when on a personal level when it's like you're because you have more worth than that to try to to try to do that and eventually i had to just realize like it's not gonna stop right well i feel like A lot of white people expect for marginalized people, for Black people in particular, because I mean, that's what I know the the best. Other people can tell me if they relate to this too, but that they want for us to beg them, plead with them, convince them, save them, you know, to see our humanity. But like, we've got our own stuff to do. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) We've got... We've got our own lives to live. Mm-hmm. We've got stuff. We've got healing work that we've got to do. We've got unlearning to do our our own selves from living under this system. You know, we just we can't spend our whole lives making coloring books for these people. <laughs> you know,
0: especially with no results.
3: Especially with no
0: results. No, I mean, there's no there's there's no return on this huge investment.
3: Yes. Yes. Exactly. Right. What we get is the, and I experienced a, a while, right? I think for people who read the book, like you see, like there's a very different Andre in the beginning of the book. Totally. The Andre absolutely. At the end because, You're talking to
0: a lot of white people, white family members in the beginning of the book, people yes. connected to you and it's painful. And eventually you just like throw up your hands and be like, I don't know. I can't do it.
3: And a part of that is because those conversations are reliving the same wound right it's like it's the same pain it's like you yeah it it was the same conversations over and over again right and the same experience over and over again of not being believed of of being you know of your feelings being minimized of being gaslighted and And so yeah like we can't keep doing it like you said with no results
0: absolutely you were at relevant
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, people in our church listened to this story and and really resonated with them because, like, it was like during Black History Month, and one of our Ooh. one of our uh, black members wanted to write pra- prayers on our daily prayer blog um, for Black History Month, and and she got from the white pastor the same answer your editor did.
3: You know? Oh, what about people who are interested in that? Or something?
0: Exactly, something like wow. that, right? Um Wow! So. You're there. You're ad relevant. You want to do this feature on, and it's online content and print content, right?
3: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, it's always interesting with online content um, how they still want to limit it, even though there's so much space.
3: Um, yeah. There's endless space.
0: And you got basically told you can't you can't write about this, and then you lost like editorial power. Yes. As a result. Yes. Um, and Relevant, I'm not trying to name it too much, but like, it's supposed to be like a somewhat progressive Christian publication, right?
3: Um, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I think that, I mean, my impression of it, because I was a fan of Relevant Magazine when I was in college, you know what I mean? Like, it was like, it was like the coolest Christian thing, you know, in my world. They were interviewing actors, not not actors from Christian movies, just like actors, musicians, you know, like yeah, totally pu- publishing books about Lauren Hill and u Two and all that kind of stuff. And so I mean, yeah, I I think that I think that in some ways it from the outside it seemed kind of progressive, yeah,
0: yeah. But then it just confirmed what you already knew, what you already felt. How did that experience yeah. change you?
3: By the time I got to Relevant. It was like, this is me giving, this is me giving the evangelical church one last chance. Mm. Like, it's not church, right? But it's Christian, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're supposed to be concerned about the world, right? So, I mean, I was really on my last leg, like trying to cross my fingers and hope that like this might redeem some of the, some of the pain that I had, uh, experienced. And like you said, it just really didn't. It was, it was the same old, same old, you know, because it wasn't like, it wasn't like in the office, like we're, we're conservative, right? It's not, it's not like, Oh no, we, we actually are Trump supporters. So we can't publish that. It was just, yeah. we want to stay out of it. Right. Which seemed to be, which seemed to be a common idea of a lot of like large evangelical platforms at the time. Now it seems like I'm not I'm not really tuned into the conversation anymore, but now it seems like a bunch of evangelical platforms are just like, no, actually, we we're just fascists now.
0: Totally. I mean, that's that's all over the place. There's there's (laughs) the lack of shame around Christian nationalism right now is surprising.
3: Yeah. But at that time, it seemed it was more like we want to stay above the fray. Is what it was and people just didn't understand. But that meeting in particular about Black History Month was just that was shocking. Mm. That was really shocking. I mean, the I mean I wrote about the conversation in the book, and I I think the article that I wrote about that a few years ago is still up on my medium blog. But the conversation was really shocking because I just expected more. I just expected more from the leadership there than to basically say, well, we don't care about that. (laughs) You know?
0: Has anyone ever reached out to you after that? Any apology, anything like that?
3: Yeah, and I mentioned this in the footnotes of the book. Like someone who was not the offender reached out to me to apologize. Mm. So I had to ask them, okay, well, is this coming from you? Is this coming from the company? Who is this apology coming from? Oh well everybody. Oh well everybody can do something. So Yeah. So what so what does this apology mean? Okay, so then the offender sent an apology, but it was like so-and-so told me that something happened in this meeting, and I'm really sad about that. And I'm like, okay, so there's no admission that I did something that caused Mm. harm to you. And you know what I mean? Like that's painful, yeah. You know, and I, I knew because people in the office had already been talking to me when it happened that the first reaction the first reaction to the article that i wrote about relevant was that the offender was just in the office laughing about it just thought it was going to blow over so i know that like 3 days later when you send me this one paragraph that doesn't name what happened <laughs> doesn't name you as the person who committed the action mm-hmm. and doesn't really say you know i realize that what i did was harmful I'm sorry for the harm that it caused you. And I'm committed to not doing it again. What does this mean? Totally. I mean, there's a lot that I could have put in that book, put in the book just about my experience with relevant and just learning about like learning about some of the things about organizing people too, because there were a lot of people who were hurt in that organization, but there was a clear difference between the way that people of color that were harmed wanted to handle that and people who are not people of color wanted to handle that. Totally. Right? And what people of color felt they needed and what they felt was um, appropriate, you know, because there was the among the people of color involved, there was a desire for some kind of restorative justice process. Not, not like, and, and this is something that I talk about. It's like white people think, it seems that white people in America think that racial justice means that they will be destroyed, right? Like that's what racial justice means to them. But here we are saying, we don't want to ruin this guy's business. We don't want this guy to go into exile forever. We, we would like an apology. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we would like for you to change some things about the structure of your business. So people are not harmed this way in the future. Totally. Totally. That's what we would like and the way that the way that other white ex-employees were talking to me in particular about this because the responsibility to kind of steward that process kind of felt to me a a lot of responsibility felt to me and so you know folks are like what are you gonna do chase down every boss that's ever hurt you and make you know try to ruin their lives why are you trying to destroy this man there was so much preoccupation with what happens to this person and I had to keep saying over and over again or I found myself feeling the need to say over and over this is not really about that person this is about all the other people who have been hurt and the people who will continue to be hurt Totally. If things continue to operate in this way.
0: White supremacy exaggerates the discomfort of white people and turns it into pain and diminishes the oppression of its victims. You know, yeah. so you're in this constant battle where like this person who offended you is, you're going to destroy them. Well, what about me? What about all these people? What are we going to do about that?
3: And there was so much Christian rhetoric in it, where it's like people are talking to me about grace and, you know, talking to me and like, oh, OK, so I because I eventually started even saying to them, like, this situation isn't even, even isn't even healthy for the offender. Like this person is going to keep on being in this position where it's like they actually shouldn't they actually shouldn't be in this position to cause this much harm much harm to people, you know, mm-hmm. Um and I remember one person going, "Oh, I see now, like you are concerned for them." And I'm sitting here like, "Why does that even matter though?" Oh, like that that's the thing that justifies it for you, but not the fact that there are like 40 people over <laughs> the course of the entire organization's history that can say, "Yeah, I'm I had to go to therapy after working there." I, you know, those kinds of things, you know. Wow. That was really wild. (laughs) It's a wild experience. It's a a relatable
0: story to a lot of us.
3: Um, Yeah, and it really really drove home the point, though, to me that, like, a lot of these, that for a lot of people, because I remember in the book what I wrote about was, like, it seemed like what these people were imagining was, we're going to do a Black History Month series and we're going to lose everything. Mind you. The series was not, we're gonna post 80 articles about black history. Right. Or or relevant to racial justice. We're going to post 20 out of 80 yeah. <laughs> that have to do with racial justice. And these people are like losing their minds. They're like, oh my gosh, but but like you think this is gonna take your business. And so it really drove home the point to me that like. The re- that a lot of white people imagine racial justice as their destruction it will destroy them which is, they, they still think that yeah which All if you time. magnify if you magnify that right like that's the great that's the great replacement theory in itself right is that like if these people if we read about black people in history class if we learn about native cultures and those kind of stuff you know like if we acknowledge that the you know the nuclear family image and the American dream of the the husband, the wife, the two, the boy and the girl kid and the dog with the white picket fence may not may not be like for everyone, right? Like that might not be the way that everyone totally. needs to live or whatever, right? Like the whole world's gonna fall apart. Like they they imagine that if they are not able to continue to denigrate and denigrate other cultures and keep their you know their norms as the the mold that everyone else has to fit in then like the world would be in disarray right totally totally and they're going to disappear right mm-hmm. they can't exist in any meaningful way if they don't if they don't exist as superiors right it seems to be like what what they believe and that really drove that home for me that experience in that organization because i couldn't believe that posting 25 percent or 20 percent about racial justice during Black History Month We're with the choices start yeah.
0: Yeah, you eventually walk away from predominantly white institutions and organizations and you say mm-hmm. you know white people need to learn to share power but we yeah. also need to empower ourselves yes talk to uh how does a predominantly white church become one that's built by the oppressed is that possible
3: Andre A predominantly white church built by the oppressed? Yes. I don't know. I don't know because, you know, my home church growing up was predominantly black and brown. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was Caribbean, African, Asian, you know, but they never had a, they never had a pastor of color. Wow. Never one time. It was always a white person? Always a white man. Always a white man. And so the reason why I say, like, I don't know if you're going to have a predominantly white church, predominantly white institution that's run by a person of color, unless that person of color is also committed to uh, white hegemony. Mm -hmm. Because because I don't see white people ever in like I don't ever see large groups of white people. Following, not following uh, a non-white leader, right? Um, not, not even saying that like all all arrangements need to be hierarchical in that way, but that pretty much is kind of the way that a lot of our organizations and institutions are set up, right? Like you have a president or a CEO or something like that, right?
0: Totally. Um, so, you're, so you're saying white lead, but people of color leaders of PWIs. Are often not committed to anti-racism.
3: I don't even know any.
0: <laughs> Is that what it means then when you say like, "Hey, we can all be white," that type of thing?
3: Yeah, right. Like anyone can be committed to building. Anyone can be committed to white power, and anyone can be committed to even maintaining if a victim white of power. It. Oh, for sure, absolutely. Right, like I mean, even even African revolutionaries write about how like. White imperialists could have never been able to accomplish what they did in Africa without the help of African people, right? Mm-hmm, totally. Um, and I think about this all the time when, like, I'm watching Handmaid's Tale or something like that, right? Like, I don't know if you watch that show or if you read that book, but it's like, it's not just that, like, and this is this is art reflecting life, art art imitating life. <clears throat> you know, it isn't just that, like, there's a bunch of men that are that have all these women as handmaids and are abusing them. It's that. Like I think the architect of that situation in in the show is a woman, right? Um totally. Which yeah, is showing, I mean, it's art imitating life because like, and this is something when it comes to racism, a lot of people don't understand. It's like one of the dumbest counterarguments that people try to launch. I shouldn't say dumb, but I mean like it's basic, right? Like when people are like, Oh, but like this person is black, so how could they be supporting white supremacy? Like they, they just say the same things that white people, that white supremacists say, you know, vote totally. for the same people white supremacists vote for, support the same policies, you know.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's noteworthy in non-black communities that anti-blackness also exists as well.
3: Yes. Yeah. Because a lot of because everybody I think that a lot of people understand that if they can, if they can somehow. <laughs> find themselves in the good graces of, of, of whiteness, right? If they can assimilate to some degree, um, align themselves as much as they can, then maybe they'll fare better than those who are the victims of it. I mean, I'm in Colombia right now. I've met, I've met white Colombians that tell me they don't like black people, right? Mm. right? They don't like black people. They don't like black Colombians, right? So they tell me, right? but they want to go to Canada or they want to go to the U S or something like that because they can have a better life. And I'm like, well, aren't you in for a surprise?
0: Yeah. I mean that my parents are totally in that zone.
3: Yeah. Aren't you in for a surprise, Mr. Velasquez? When, when you find that you don't get the same treatment as Mr. Smith, Mm, you know, totally mind you, like you have to get a visa to travel to my country. They don't, they don't want you here. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? But a lot of people have the same notion that many lower class white people have had in America for many years, which is, OK, no, I may not I may not ever have the money or power as Bill Gates or Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or whatever, but at least I'm not black. Mm. Mm. And that really that really has been I mean, who? I can't remember who I think it was W.E.B. Du Bois. Who talked about that is like the psychological wage or something like that. It's like the racial, the racial bribe, you know, of being white. That's a lot of people's, it's a lot of people's attitudes. And so I see that a lot. I see that a lot. And that's partly why I wrote the book. You know, like I know that white people can learn a lot from it, but I partly wrote I partly wrote the book because I know, I know a handful of black men in particular. And I think this is a problem amongst us Black men that there's a handful of Black men that I could name, that I won't, that I could name that are like, they're playing the game, right? They're not trying to dismantle the system or, or whatnot because they think that they can win. Totally. They think they can win at the game as it exists. And, but the cost of it Right. Is that they kind of have to be a traitor to their own people.
0: Absolutely. You know, we do our best. We try to make it. I understand assimilation. I understand why we try. Yeah. But it's a raw deal. You'll never get there, you know. And for right. what it's worth, for poor white people, for working class white people, it's the same deal. You just white, yeah. you know, <laughs> right? you're getting <laughs> oppressed right. by the same forces.
3: <laughs> right. It, yes. It, oppressed by the, by the same forces. But also feel that they could become, right? Like I think that's the thing is like they don't see themselves as oppressed; they see themselves as aspiring, um, totally. aspiring oppressors.
0: It's right? it's yeah, exactly. It's and and it's a raw deal for them too. White supremacy affects all of us, really. Yeah, yeah. For people of color, and and I, we'll wrap this up pretty soon, Andre. For people of color that have left institutions have left churches. You know, what can organizations do to listen to their experience, listen to their pain and change, you know, um, without even so this is, adding labor to them?
3: This is really interesting to me because it's like you see an organization get called out by an individual. Take the NFL with Colin Kaepernick or something, right? Good example. I don't even think Kaepernick was calling out the NFL initially. He was just bringing attention to an issue in, in the country. Right.
0: No, I mean, police brutality, police killing black people.
3: Right. And then he got blackballed by the NFL and they, they basically forced him out of the league. Right. And then afterward, like they start, they start allowing a little bit more leeway when it comes to like addressing these issues. Right. Like, like the, the agreement with Jay-Z is definitely not perfect or whatever. I don't even know if it's good but it's a step in the direction that Kaepernick was pushing the league anyway. Right. Um, I I actually got a couple of songs picked up by the NFL network for the Super Bowl this year. And I remember like some of the, a couple of the producers talking about one of the pieces that they were working on is like, this was their way of trying to, you know, at least address something that was going on in the world without rocking the boat too much. And so I'm bringing this up to say, like, I see organizations do do this a lot where it's like they push people out that are pushing them in the direction that they need to go in. Afterward, because of the public feedback or whatever, they realize, okay, well, we're not going to be able to keep on doing business as usual, but they don't just listen to the person that they kicked out in the first place. In fact, I mean, they may as well just bring the person back and say, okay, what were you saying? Mm-hmm. Right? Totally. But a lot of organizations don't do that. And so I and I've also I've also been brought into different conversations with different organizations where there are constituents of color that are trying to push the leadership to not push the leadership, but are asking the leadership to listen to them. The leadership doesn't want to. They're very reluctant about it. And I just watch those people get burnt out and leave.
0: Totally. Yes. And so it's that like, all the time.
3: Yeah. And so like you don't want to like be put in this position where it's like you have to be the resident non-white person that has to like deal with all of that that process of grief and pastor people through that and shepherd people through that unless that's your thing like some people have the grace to do that um and at the same time like it's going to be business as usual if that organization doesn't have people who are from those from those communities and politically aware not just black faces in high places that doesn't do anything Um, but people who have those, those perspectives that actually, actually have decision-making power. Totally. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, I think that that's part of the issue is that like a lot of these, a lot of these leaders and organizations seem to be looking for consultants. Right. Totally. Right. Advice. And really what they're trying to do is make sure that the organization doesn't appear to be racist.
0: (laughs) Which is much different than being (laughs) anti-racist.
3: Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, but I, I've often said, like, when I was when I was more interested in like seeing. I shouldn't say it like that. I mean, I am still interested in seeing churches and religious institutions participate in social movements, but I'm not committed to trying to get reluctant evangelical churches to do what they don't want to do. right? Yeah. But, but when I was, I I used to keep saying like especially because a lot of those those churches in particular are like they the pastor holds so much power you know that it's like if the pastor themselves is not on a journey to understand like how might i be participating even unwittingly in the preservation of of white power then nothing's going to happen so i think there's a combination of those things right like Where the leadership needs to understand that any of us, any of us can be upholding this oppressive power structure. And we need to be personally committed to learning about what that system looks like, how it works, so that we can see how we might be doing that and we can change. Absolutely. Right? And then also, like, you need to have other people from these communities that are politically aware that also have decision-making power. With you, you know, mm. because otherwise, like, if it's just like, yeah, Andre works. Andre's our graphic designer, but he's the only Black person in the office, so we're just gonna like keep running things by him. Then, like, that's that is kind of like exhausting.
0: It totally you is,
3: know? especially if you don't listen. Especially if you don't listen to the graphic, the graphic designer of color that you keep sending sending stuff to. So it's like, why am I giving you my opinion anyway? You're just gonna do whatever you want to do. Totally right. I mean, but those are some things that come to mind for me. It's like sharing actual decision-making power and the leadership needs to be actually like on a journey themselves. Excellent.
0: Well, thanks so much, Andre. Um, So good to talk to you. The books, all the white friends I couldn't keep. Um, Where can we follow what you're up to these days? Your music, what you're writing, what's happening?
3: I mean, the best the best way to keep in touch with me is my email list on my website, andrehenry.co. Um, that has like I send out links, stuff that I'm reading or that I've come across that I think are interesting, noteworthy, um, okay. updates on you know, projects, um, like nuggets of like insight that I've that I'm gleaning from my studies and stuff like that. And then obviously like all the places that i all other places that i am online like are super easy to find from there.
0: Okay, cool. That's awesome. Um and can we can where can we hear your music?
3: Um literally anywhere music is streaming. I also send out, you know, updates when i have new songs on my mailing list, but literally if awesome. you use iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, Bandcamp, whatever you use YouTube, .com. you know. That's awesome. I'm there.
0: Well, cool. So good to have you, Andre. Glad you're on our show.
3: Thanks for having me. Thanks again.
2: To wrap things up, we like to share what has been nourishing to us. Um, We all need, we all need stuff that like feeds our life with God. And it's good to pay attention to um, that nourishment in intentional ways. So, pastors, what has been feeding you? What can you share today?
0: I think we've already mentioned this book, but I just want to say it again. Donya Rutenberg's book on repentance and repair is one I read a few weeks ago. And the way the rabbi talks about how to seek repentance and how to do it privately and publicly and what rebuke means and what forgiveness means and what atonement means, right? She has a really strong sociological and theological perspective that is super helpful for me in understanding how to do work, especially around r- racist harm and other kinds of you know, sexist harm, homophobic harm but also interpersonal. Um, So I think it was good for me to read as a pastor. Um, And also helpful for me to see how the challenges we have with repenting actually can sometimes come up directly from the Christian tradition. Um, And what it means to atone, be forgiven once and for all. You know, sometimes we want to mimic how Jesus forgives while we forget that there was a real cost how Jesus forgives us you know it didn't just happen Jesus died and rose again and suffered and there was a lot of process so it helps uh pave the way for what how how it might look for us to make repair to
1: I'm enjoying. I'm really appreciating that book too, Johnny. And I'm also reading. Finally, reading this here, "Flesh, Spirituality, Liberation, and the Stories That Make Us," by Cole Arthur Riley. And um, I've been following Black Liturgies on Instagram for a while, but um, so glad to be finally um, in this exquisite. Book. Um, what a just a powerful work of vulnerability and wisdom. Cole Arthur Riley has <laughs> offered to the world, um, and it's really helping helping me uh, to tune into my own experience in my in my body and and feelings, um, and to kind of sit sit more patiently and gently with the process there um and so I'm I'm I was in a text conversation yesterday with somebody and felt like I was able to kind of um respond in a more authentic way and um Just grateful, grateful for the invitation, I think, to to slow down and um, consider um, all that is is happening in me and the world uh, around me um, a little more consciously.
2: I went to see Les Mis. Mm hmm. Our whole family went this past week. Les Mis is in Philadelphia, and I've seen it before and love it and love all the music, and I wanted my kids to experience it. Unfortunately, they did not share my love in the same way. They didn't love it?
1: (gasps) Not even (laughs) when you get to do you hear the people sing?
2: Um n- n- no, not even there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it didn't help that whatever. I shouldn't be I'm not here to talk about my kids experience of it. Um <laughs> but we got tickets. It was like a last minute deal. This is what what spurred our decision to go. Uh, There were tickets for, like, $31, and the only seats available were in the top section. So we were literally on, like, eye level with the chandelier, the top of the chandelier. So we saw everything looking straight down on top. And if you've ever sat in the top, uh, this is at the Academy of Music. Mm -hmm. The seats are tiny, and there's, like, no room to move. And so we were packed in there. And there, unfortunately, our, we had an obstructed view seat with the pole in front of us. So the kids were not loving it. Um, and it was hard. It was hard to experience the the show that way, I'll be honest. But it fed my soul because I know the music and I know the story. And it was just so powerful. Like even up there, even with not great visibility, the sound, the music, the words of the songs were just like, you know, enveloping us. And it was just so powerful to be in the room with people. Um uh, what do I wanna say? Like just just with their powerful voices and such beautiful music. So not to mention this great story of forgiveness, redemption, change, uh, someone who cannot change. And um, anyway, so just the experience. I love live theater. I love musicals. So just doing that fed my soul. Beautiful. Write to us and tell us what is... um, Uh, your own spiritual show and tell, like what what is nourishing your life with God, your life as a full human being um, made in the image of God. It gives us joy to hear that. Um, Thanks for listening. And um, until next time, peace be with you.